This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are from Shepard Mullen. We, on the government contract side of the firm, we have Jonathan Ernie and Ryan Roberts and Joining us from the labor and employment side of the firm is Denise Gerardo. Um, guys, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It is at the top of everybody's mind these days in government contract world and just corporate world, frankly, is vaccine mandates, you know, to be or not to be. And the recent executive order ensuring adequate COVID safety protocols for federal contractors that executive order is now rolling out in implementation, and it's great to have the three subject matter experts on today to talk about what it means for government contractors um, and corporate folks in general. So, you know, Jonathan, I'm going to turn to you first, and just uh, can you talk a little bit about the executive order itself and what's it all about? Yeah, well, first, Roger, thanks for having us back. As always, we always have a lot of fun on your radio show. Yeah, the, the executive order is... To say it's interesting is an understatement. I have, you know, I've been doing this, what, like you, Roger, well, you're much older than I. So I've, I've been doing it for about 27 years. And I think this is one of the two or three most impactful procurement events I've seen. Like looking back to, you know, when I was a kid and FASA and FARA came about, that was huge. I'd say this is one of the top two. For those, like one or two of your listeners who don't know, right, this is uh, an executive order that is uh, doing several things, um, mandating vaccines for government contractors. That's the big takeaway here. It applies to most contractors and their subcontractors. It is different from the OSHA rule that people have heard about. And I know my partner, Denise, will talk a little bit about that. I think, and I'm pretty sure Ryan and Denise will agree with me, we've probably had more calls on this executive order than any change in, in a decade. So with that in mind, so can you talk, I mean, it's, um, the timeline is quite challenging in and of itself as well, right? So, you know, the you know, agencies are already issuing their deviations out there and uh, they're working on clauses. It, in some sense, it reminds me, and I'm in a real wonky, is when the, when the government, when Congress raised the micro-purchase threshold to uh, $10,000, like the FAR council couldn't get anything done. So they told all the departments and agencies to do their own separate deviation. This is sort of like that, but not in that things have been issued, but they're leaving it to each of the departments and agencies to actually fall through on the implementation. What does that mean, guys? Yeah, we got to give the FAR council some credit on this one though, Roger. They were pretty quick in getting a, a draft FAR clause out faster than we've ever seen a FAR clause come out. Though I will say talk about seminal events in procurement history. This is the first time I can remember seeing a dynamic FAR clause that simply cites a URL and says all of the requirements you see on that webpage, that's what's incorporated into your contract. So I'm giving them credit for getting the FAR clause out early. They cheated a little bit. They said, just go look at the website. All of the requirements are there. But yeah, we, we saw that uh, late on September 30th into October 1st, and then the agency deviations followed shortly thereafter, kind of taking the, the draft FAR clause that the FAR Council developed 
rolling that out through their agencies with some specific guidance. Yeah, GSA uh, gave the most nuance in their guidance. I think it was a 14-page document. Other agencies have a bit, been a bit more straightforward saying, here's the FAR clause. We're going to incorporate it uh, literally anywhere and everywhere we can. So we, we saw that beginning of the month. You know, We're going to start seeing, well, I guess we already have started seeing mods incorporating that clause for certain of our clients. And it's just going to keep picking up steam as we roll through October 15th. We see new solicitations incorporating this clause and then through November 14th with new awards, uh, all pushing towards the ultimate deadline here, Roger, which is December 8th. So that's the date by which federal contractors need to be able to demonstrate compliance for their covered employees performing under their covered contracts. Yeah, Roger, I just I just want to go back to Ryan's point about this dynamic FAR clause for a second. It, it, it really is interesting. I want to make sure everyone understands that. The rule seems legal to me. The, the concept of a dynamic FAR clause is somewhat questionable to me as a procurement rule, right? Like dynamic is the opposite of knowing what you're signing up to as a contracting party. If the government can ch- materially change your contracted obligations... And then the concept is that automatically applies to you because you've signed up to a never-ending, ever-changing FAR clause. I'm not so sure that actually passes muster. And as I recall, you used to be a lawyer for the government, Roger, so I love your take on this. But that's just something worth thinking about, how unique this is. That's a great point, because I can remember when I was in government and you know, private companies would reference you know, websites, particularly you know, related to software publications and that sort of thing. And the government would say, well, wait a second, what have I signed up to? Because you could change it at any time. And now it's turned around the other way. And, and I think that's a great point. And one of the things that folks are obviously going to have to focus on, right, is uh, making sure somebody's checking that dynamic website <laughs> clause uh, uh, periodically to see if anything has changed um, and what it may or may not mean for the company. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, um, Denise, you know, I know we're going to talk more in, in the, later in the show, but I just wanted to get your sense of, from a labor and employment uh, perspective, just what the challenges are from a company's perspective when they're thinking about this. I think there's a, there's a few challenges. The first is, how do we do this? A lot of companies have not had a mandate, have um, kind of stayed on the outskirts of doing that. And I think the EO attempts to give some guidance on how to do this in that they're requiring all companies to have a safety coordinator to implement this. And so that safety coordinator's job is to actually hopefully follow the URL and see if that is ever changing or if the guidance is ever changing. But really, it's going to be the biggest challenge is how do we do this? And so um, in terms of how to implement the vaccine mandate, how to implement the mask and social distancing required by this EO. And, you know, Ryan and Jonathan, we've all discussed this. The biggest piece of advice we can do, say for all clients and those considering how do we comply is start now and get going. Ryan, can you run through the key dates again for us? I think that's like yeah. to get going. <laughs> if you haven't started yeah. now, you're already way behind, right? <laughs> yeah. And one thing to keep in mind here, Roger, is we're actually dealing with three parallel sets of rules. And that's part of what's making this very complicated. We're, we're going to dive into the executive order here, but there are three things that a lot of our clients are struggling with simultaneously. So one, we've got this executive order. Two, we've got the rules that apply to contractor employees going and working on site. A number of our clients have folks that show up to federal buildings every day 
And the rules are different for those people than they are just for the, in the federal contractor space. And the timelines are more accelerated. So, you know, Denise and I were working through this issue with the client yesterday. Some federal uh, entities are requiring contractor employees to be vaccinated by November 22nd. So earlier than the December 8th deadline we're seeing for this EO. So just keep that in mind that those two sets of rules are different. And then we'll we'll see if this ever happens. But then we've got the OSHA rulemaking that's going to apply, we think, to every company with more than 100 employees in the U.S. that'll have a vaccine requirement or a weekly testing option. We've heard a lot about legal challenges there. We'll see that comes to fruition. But part of the complexity here is that our clients are dealing with three separate sets of rules simultaneously. Um, On this particular one, yeah, the timeline is critical here. So when they first announced the general timeline, we we're going to see the FAR clause on December 8th. Uh, this is one of the few times I can remember where the, the government community was way out ahead of the deadline, got the FAR clause out September 30th. So we've seen that now for a week, working towards October 15th. So that's the next key milestone there. That's when we're going to see officially this clause being incorporated into new solicitations, for example. Practically, that's when we're supposed to see it incorporated, but we've already seen it being incorporated. You know, the FAR clause came out October 1st. We saw it incorporated into a contract on October 4th. So to take that October 15th deadline with a grain of salt, though, we're seeing action here already. The next big deadline is November 14th. So that's what we're talking about for new awards. That's when you receive, if you sign a dotted line of the contract, the clause should be in any new award. And again, we're all working towards December 8th. So that's when uh, you, your employees as a federal contractor have to be, have to be vaccinated. And Jonathan, we've got a, about a minute left in this segment. In this yeah. segment. No, I just, I just want to add another, another component to the timeline here. Ryan talked about where these three separate regimes in a sense, but we also have three different timelines within this regime because this rule requires employees to be, quote, fully vaccinated by the 8th of December. And to be fully vaccinated, it means you need to be two weeks out after your second shot for a two-shot vaccine. So since the timeline of each of the three primary vaccines is different, you actually have to have your employees get their first shot very in October, in fact, for one of the vaccines. And so now you, you have three different timelines if you work back from the eighth as to when you need to get your employees their first shot. Yeah, that's yeah. So I guess people get the J and J shot, huh? I don't know. So, well, anyway. well, from a, from the perspective of right, <laughs> if if you wait long enough, that's going to be your only compliant option. Now, I, I'm sure what a lot of we'll talk about this after the break, but yep. you know, so I'm sure some companies will put people on, you know, on on leave if they're if they're close to getting there. Right. Or like, is the government really going to like if somebody's got one shot? And it's, it's, I don't know. That's a, that we should dig, definitely hit that after the break. <laughs> OK, great. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of uh, the ongoing implementation of the executive order on COVID safety protocols for federal contractors. My guests today are Jonathan Arney, Ryan Roberts and Denise Jurado from Shepard Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are from Shepard Mullen, uh, Jonathan Ernie and Ryan Roberts from the government contract side of the house, and Denise Girado from the labor and employment uh, side of the firm. And we're talking the COVID safety protocols uh, for federal contractors, the executive order and its implementation. And Denise, I'm going to turn to you first. Can you um, 
we we talked a lot about it, but just uh, I think to, to start this segment, just to get the fundamentals down, you know, what are the requirements of the executive order and the clauses that are rolling out? Sure. So the big ticket item that everyone's heard about, we already talked about, is the vaccine mandate. That's part one. Part two is that there is going to be requirements for masking, similar to what we've seen with the CDC guidance indoors in areas of high and substantial transmission. So essentially right now with the Delta variant, that's basically the entire United States. Um, and also if masking is not really practical, there's gonna be social distancing requirements. Those are the two kind of what you have to do in the workplace. But the third is an interesting aspect and it's, can be kind of a, it's, it's a new position for workforces and it's a safety coordinator. And so what this safety coordinator does, and we'll go into a little bit more detail, but it's so much so it's making sure people's masks are on right, covering your nose, ensuring and collecting vaccine cards or ensuring that vaccines are, all employees are fully vaccinated. So this safety coordinator is not just your tra traditional health and safety OSHA person. It's not your traditional HR person. It's somewhat a combination of the two, and they are in charge of ensuring compliance for the company and ensuring all employees are in compliance with the EO. And so it's somewhat creating a new position, but it's a unique um, aspect of this EO that we haven't seen before. So Denise, I'm going to follow up because something you said I hadn't really thought about, but I guess uh, companies are going to have to collect vaccination cards to demonstrate compliance for their employees. Can you talk? I mean, that sounds very, well, just has a lot of issues around it, it seems to me. Is that fair to say? Yes, you're absolutely right, Roger. There are some concerns there. Um, but the EEOC guidance is clear, is that the vaccine cards are considered personal health information that should be kept separate and apart from personnel files. So employees should feel very comfortable that employers are handling this as confidentially as possible. Um, the EO does not require an employer to take your vaccine card from you and keep it in a file. The EO allows just a photograph of, of the um, vaccine card or even an, a letter from a medical professional attesting to the fact that you are fully vaccinated. We've seen clients handle this a variety of ways. A third party collects that and it's uploaded into your payroll system so that there's just a check that says compliance. Um, there's clients who have AI systems that they've invested in that will just verify that your vaccine card is not counterfeit because those do exist these days. And we also have clients who have or various employers that whose safety coordinator or if they have one or more safety coordinators is reviewing the vaccine cards, checking it off in the systems and handing it back to the employee. But the biggest thing to remind employees is that this process is confidential and there's no intermingling of, of information. Right. So it's the basics of, of, of some of the, you know, what the companies have to deal with. I guess I'm going to turn to Jonathan and Ryan to talk a little bit about the scope of it. And when we say government contracts, what are we, what are we really saying, Jonathan? Well, I'll jump in, Roger. So it's, it's actually okay. easier to talk about what's not covered here than what is covered because the definition included in the guidance is so broad. So the task force could have easily come out and said a contract is already defined in the FAR. Just go look at the, the FAR definition for what constitutes a contract. Instead, they came up with contract and contract-like instruments to describe what's covered here and use some pretty broad language. So the, the guidance talks about any procurement actions, lease agreements, cooperative agreements, provider agreements, service agreements, licenses, permits, 
or any other type of agreement, regardless of what it's called, whether it's oral or in writing. And if that wasn't clear enough that they want everything to be covered here, they added in another line. This includes, but is not limited to, any contract that may be covered under any federal procurement statute. That's everything, Roger. The two carve-outs that they are explicit in the guidance and, and in the executive order are grants and contracts under the simplified acquisition threshold. So you're under 250K. But remember, if you get one of these contracts over 250K, that incorporates this clause, the ripple effects here spread throughout your company. And, and we'll talk about the logistics piece of that too. So I think just as a baseline, we're talking about the limited exceptions where contracts aren't covered as opposed to what is covered here. We, we should probably also add that not only is it broad the way Ryan just described, but the rule explicitly encourages contracting officers to take it even beyond the existing scope. The, the rule says, hey, this doesn't apply to exclusively products, but then the rule goes on to say, but, you know, we'd really like contracting officers to apply it there anyway. So, Jonathan, I have to add why. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like that. Like, here's the rule. But please, please apply to everything, right? I, so I haven't seen it either. But then again, I haven't seen a procurement in the middle of a global pandemic. So I don't really know if I have something to hold this up against. Right. Well, I, I'm just trying to, you know, what what is the purpose of that type of language other than to not yourself say it, but have the departments and everybody else say it, right? I mean, I don't. So that's a really good point. One could understand why the drafters of the executive order felt that their powers were constrained by the procurement process, right? They, they're using the procurement process as a hook to make these, these social decisions. And you know whether you agree with them or not, that's what's happening here. And so you can understand some of the decisions they made, but I don't fully understand this, right? They could make the exact same procurement claim to cover a product contract as you do a service contract. They're, they both have human beings doing the work, but they didn't. They focused on services and they encouraged people to go the product route. I assume someone there thought that they have a more credible claim that uh, keeping human beings providing services healthy was more of a procurement imperative. I, I'm not sure whether that really holds up. So can you guys talk about who it applies to in the companies and what's a covered workplace? Yeah. So there, there's, let's unpack that because there are two different pieces there and they're both critical. I'll let, let, let me take the employee one and then we'll see if we have time in this segment to hit both. So, yeah. so the rule gets its scope and breadth really because of the three types of employees it covers. It, it, it puts employees in three groups. One, employees that are working on a federal contract. And, and, and working's you know, defined broadly. It certainly covers a direct bill employee. Uh, it probably also covers your you know, GSA schedule contract administrator. Anyone with a straight face who says working on the contract, they're covered in that first bucket. Bucket two is the really expansive one. Anyone working in connection with the federal contract. And so think of that as anyone supporting those people who work on the contract. And that, that includes your law department. Yes. HR, accounting, contracts, finance. Like if you're doing payroll for your federal employees, you're in play now. If you're the HR rep for your federal employees, you're in play now, right? So you can see how your shared services functions now come into play. And then the third bucket is what brings them all together as one big, happy, covered family. 
And that is, if you're working in a workplace, in a facility, in which one of those first two buckets works. So if you're working in a building where direct bill employees work, or you're working in a building where any of these shared service support people work, you're a covered employee. In a sense, your whole building's covered, your whole workplace. Right, even if you are have never worked on a government contract in your life or-, or Yeah, you're, like you're now covered because you work in that building. So let's, I mean, let's, let's just think of what that looks like in, in real life here, right? Let's say you have five facilities across the U.S., right? And you have, you have a home office with a thousand people in it. And you got one person in this office, that's the HR rep that covers your federal sales team. Well, if that person's going to come into the office, that whole building is now covered. So this covered workplace concept ties into the covered employee concept. They work hand in hand. And so just remember those three buckets on the contract, supporting the contract in a building where either of those first two work. And that's how it gets its scope. So, Ryan, we got about a minute, so I have to ask about what about employees working remotely? Yeah, so the, the guidance was very clear about that. That's one of the things we saw the executive order. We didn't know how they would treat telework employees. The guidance leaves no doubt. If you telework, if you are directly supporting or working in connection with a, a federal contract, you are covered regardless of whether you ever step foot into an office. And remember that the way that the, the administration has pitched this executive order and guidance is not necessarily to protect the workplace. So they're using the workplace concept to, to cover more folks. It's to protect the flow of the procurement process and the administration of government contracts. So with that rationale, regardless of where people work, they need to be vaccinated so they don't get sick and they can't do their jobs. Right. So, and we do have to take the break, but when I come back, I'm going to ask you the question. So what about remote employees who report to an office that includes people who are covered? And maybe we're supposed to come in once a week or whatever, just as a hypothetical. So when we come back, my um, we're talking about the COVID safety executive order protocols for federal contractors. My guests today are Jonathan Ernie, Brian Roberts, and Denise Girado from Shepherd Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Jonathan Ernie, Ryan Roberts, and Denise Girado from Shepherd Mullen. We're talking the executive order implementation, COVID safety protocols for federal contractors. And Ryan, I, I, you know, I teed you up for the beginning of the segment. So what about those remote employees who maybe haven't been in the office for like 18 months, but they have an office they report to, and there's conceivably a possibility that they might end up coming in for a day? even in one month or something. What, what, is, what happens there? Yeah, bad, bad news. They're going to be covered. They're, they're going to be subject to the requirements of the EO. And you know, I like to think about these in, in terms of like real life examples. So say you have a, a commercial sales rep only focuses on commercial accounts, no direct work for the government, no indirect support of government contracts. The second they step foot in that covered workplace, they become covered by the EO despite any nexus to the federal work. Uh, And that was intentional. The scope here was very clear. Cover as many Americans as possible. And that's the way they did it. Yeah, just the permutations of this thing are um, it's it's, it's, it is it's it's clearly philosophically, you know, when you even talk about the definition of contracts. Right. It's like there are so many agreements the federal government has with all kinds of different you know, infrastructure providers or whatever, that's, uh, you know, the scope is to try to cover everybody. So, and speaking of covering everybody, um, you know, what about uh, subcontracts? You know, could you talk about how the flow down is supposed to work or not work? 
Sure, Roger. This is a this is a very aggressive flow down. It uh, I think the easiest way to think about it is it goes all the way down. You know how far how far down all the way down. It goes multiple tiers. Every subcontractor at every tier has an obligation to flow it down to every further tier until you get to the spot where you have an exclusive product provider. Now the problem with that, Roger, is it's tough to figure out where someone is providing exclusively a product as opposed to a product intertwined with services. So you're going to see prime contractors and subcontractors be particularly aggressive in their interpretation of the flow down so they don't get themselves in trouble. And frankly, Roger, what we know from the way GSA has interpreted this is that GSA views product providers as often also providing intertwined services, warranty, maintenance, training, mm-hmm. All of those things, GSA seems to say, oh, you're not really exclusively a product provider. So yeah, long and short of that one is flow down all the way down. So yeah, and I think you're right on. They're going to apply the definition of exclusively a product provider is going to be very, very narrow. And then they're going to apply it to it anyway, right? So my last question on this applicability, because I think we should deal with this and then we can turn to accommodations and some of the implementation issues is just services. What are the services that are that are covered by this, Ryan. Yeah, so we, we think about it in a, a couple of different buckets, and ju- just acknowledging here that the guidance in the EO themselves are not particularly clear. Right when the executive order came out, it had four categories of, of covered contract types. We'll call them. The first said services, construction, and leasehold interest in property. The second bullet point was services covered by the Service Contract Act. Both of those don't need to be there if we're talking about all services. So we're reading we're reading off one of reading out one of the two. It's just a matter of which. So we, we were looking forward to seeing the deviations and seeing what the agencies had to say on which types of services were covered. And noticeably absent from almost all of those deviation documents were any discussion of the Service Contract Act, Davis-Bacon Act, et cetera. It only talked about services. So when we think about it, we thought Davis-Bacon Act, sure, construction, going to be a covered service here. Service Contract Act, explicitly covered under the text of the EO. What about all those other people-based services? So I think anybody billing labor category hours that aren't covered by those two statutory regimes, based on the deviations we've seen, we're assuming that all of those folks are covered too, um, just based on that first clause of the EO that just says services, period. The most interesting question, I think, are non-people-based services. So you mentioned like infrastructure providers. So wireless, broadband, ethernet, software as a service, you know, things that we call services, but aren't people billing by the hour. We haven't seen any direct guidance on that question, uh, which puts companies in a position that, that they have to take a conservative approach or risk running afoul of the FAR clause and the EO, especially when you need at least two months to come into compliance with that EO, right? You don't have the benefit of time to waiting to see if someone's going to give you an out in early December. But that is that is one of the lingering questions here that we're, we're monitoring through the implementation phase. Jonathan? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Ryan. It, it is one of the unanswered questions, right? These non-people-based services. We, we do know GSA's answer to that, though. Right. GSA has taken the position that this rule will apply to all of its schedule contracts, whether they're products or not. So at least from a GSA perspective, non-human being based services, like Brian said, data storage, Internet bandwidth, what have you. GSA says they're all covered. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, at, at least that's clearer. Right. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, yeah. right. It, it's yeah. it's clear. It's clear for one agency certainly, and 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 a pretty important one. Right. So Denise, can we start? Uh, let's turn to the logistics of this a little bit and talk about. I mean, I know you talked about the um, earlier about the coordinator and the role that individual will play in a company, and you did talk about the vaccinations and you know, how you record keep for those. Can you talk about requests for accommodations? What is that aspect of it and how will that work? Sure. So the EO allows for two exemptions from the vaccine requirement and in two scenarios. One where someone is seeking an accommodation due to a medical condition or a disability. And the second is if for someone who has a needs an accommodation for a sincerely held religious belief. And both of those are going to require an employer to engage in an interactive process, whether it's through the safety coordinator or through HR, to see if there's an accommodation that would allow the employee to work while not being vaccinated. So a lot of employers, um, for example, are going to want, they may want that person to be in the workplace and um, not be vaccinated and have specific protocols in order to accommodate that unvaccinated employee. A lot of employers we've seen are seeing if teleworking is an option for their employees who need an accommodation. And in some cases, when it's an employee that needs to be on site at a government agency that requires vaccines and has no exemption allowed for someone that's not vaccinated, in those cases, we've seen employees go on an unpaid leave of absence. But again, the key here for accommodations, Roger, is that it's an individualized assessment. There's no one size fits all. So we've seen um, a lot of clients and employers come up to speed with kind of the requirements of their own customers, their own office policies, and seeing getting creative here on how to hopefully accommodate employees that, that have that sincerely held religious belief or need a medical accommodation. And turning back to the coordinator role, you know, what, what are your sort of thoughts on who it should or shouldn't be in a, in a company. I mean, you talked about the head of HR versus, you know, other, what are your thoughts there? It's somewhat of a hybrid role, right? It's a combination of your health and safety person, as well as your HR person. So if it, truthfully, I think an HR person is probably best equipped to deal with this because there's going to be an interact interplay here of the Americans with Disabilities Act Title VII with respect to religious accommodations and OSHA requirements in a way because masking and social distancing is in line with what the OSHA general duty clause is requiring right now on COVID guidance. So I think it's probably most likely going to be an HR person who can not only respond to, quite frankly, employee complaints that come in as a result of the EO, but also do that individualized assessment that's required um, for the accommodation process. This sounds like it's going to cost a fair amount of money, uh, Jonathan. Um, is there any opportunity here for equitable adjustments, or is that going to be an issue that's going to be you know, to be determined? Well, there's a few answers to that. I think for some contractors, it's it's actually an easy answer. Like you know, let's say you're a you're a big aerospace and defense company, and you have cost reimbursement contracts, and you have a disclosed accounting system. This could absolutely be recoverable if it's part of your disclosed practices. Um, let's contrast that, Roger. If you're a typical GSA schedule contractor and you're just doing commercial items work and you don't have cost reimbursement contracts, you don't have disclosed accounting practices, well, your only hope is to request permission from your CO to raise your prices under the Economic Price Adjustment Clause. Now, the EPA clause does contemplate these crazy off the wall situations. 
um, where unexpected, unforeseen costs increase. So th there's, a, there's a vehicle for this. But then the clause, you know, friendly enough ends by saying, oh, by the way, it's totally at the discretion of your contracting officer. It's up to him or her. So we don't know to what extent COs are going to be amenable to these requests. And, and hand in hand with this, Roger, not only is the cost increase, but, but the schedule delays. So I, I, think, I think contractors have to be vigilant about cost increases and schedule delays, and they really got to know what their rights are under their contracts. If ultimately you want to make these requests, you have to start keeping track of things now. You have to keep records now. You have to keep timesheets now. You're going to document the changes that necessitate the costing price increase or scheduled delay. Right. And on that note, we have to take our break and when we come back, we can talk about the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns of the rule um, and, and where we go from here. My guests today are Jonathan Erney, Ryan Roberts, and Denise Girado from Shepherd Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guests today are Jonathan Erney, Ryan Roberts, and Denise Gerardo from Shepherd Mullen. We're talking about the executive order implementation, COVID safety protocols for federal contractors. And, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the implementation of the clause and the executive order and all that good stuff. Um, but, uh, Denise, can you give us a sort of brief, quick summary of, you know, you're, you're focusing on the OSHA rule in your practice in labor and employment. Um, how does it differ? or similar, or, or just what does it mean in the context of the federal contractor rules? Sure. So the biggest difference between the OSHA rule and the EO that just came out is that the OSHA rule will allow for an opt-out of the vaccine requirement so that employees that, the employees that say, I'm never getting vaccinated, that's going to be allowed so long as they do weekly testing. That option is not available under the executive order. So it's really, you choose path A or path B under the OSHA rule. And under the, and it's either testing or vaccine. And under the executive order, it's vaccine only. The OSHA rule, we are still awaiting the draft, um, but it will be applicable to all employers, private employers, 100 employees plus. So that's the biggest difference, Roger. Yeah, that's interesting that the testing is an option under one and not under the other. I don't, I don't quite what the... This, why the distinction? Do you have any sense, Denise? I don't think uh, testing's not not cheap these days, to be honest, Roger. And I think that if a private employer is going to allow an employee to opt out, many of our clients and employers that I've talked to will be covering the cost of that. And so it's also a logistical issue. Um, that's my biggest thought, but I don't know if Jonathan or Ryan, you have other thoughts as to the difference. So that would go to like, yeah, equitable adjustments or the you know cost reimbursement aspect of a contract is is that fair, or Jonathan? I've just that popped in my head. So. Yeah, I, I think I think the cost issues are the same thing we talked about before, right? I think again, if you if you can recover these sorts of costs and you're disclosed accounting practices and you're in good shape, if not, you know you're, you're out of luck. But I, I I think one of the other one of the other reasons is I think the government feels like their power is greater under the executive order because contracting is not a right, it's a privilege. And, you know, and where it's a privilege, then government has more leverage. That's, so I think it's as practical as that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so yeah, you don't have to be a government contractor, right? <laughs> right. So, 
Okay, so let's turn to the future, so to speak, or some of the known unknowns or unknowns. Um, and, you know, looking in your crystal ball down the road, how, how do you think, so what are some of the issues you think are yet to be addressed or will become issues as implementation continues? I'll start with Ryan there. Yeah, so so we have a few, Roger, that have been on our list uh, literally since day one and unfortunately remain. It, the number one thing is some additional clarification around services. We, we understand GSA's position. It'll be interesting to hear as other agencies come out and take a position on which services are covered under the scope of the rule. Again, for the time being, we're operating under the assumption that all services, people-based, non-people-based, SCA, DBA, doesn't matter they're all going to be covered. Uh, another interesting question we haven't touched on yet is the applicability of the EO to parents, subsidiaries, affiliates of the contracting entity. So for example, a number of our clients have a specific federal contracting entity that signs on the dotted line of each of these agreements. And the definitions in the task force guidance make clear that they apply to the contracting entity. You know, for some of our clients, that contracting entity doesn't house many people. So does this EO extend to everyone at corporate headquarters, for example, because there are some shared services at headquarters that they provide to the federal subsidiary, and therefore the whole company is covered? Again, the the conservative approach that most companies are taking for the time being that this will cover everyone, but the, the guidance isn't explicit on that point. And then lastly, the task force guidance provides for a 60-day deferral option if agencies choose to use it for mission-critical, urgent contractors. I'm curious to see if that's actually going to be utilized and and in what circumstances federal agencies are going to give a little bit of leeway to contractors who they acknowledge are, are making a good faith effort to comply, but just that we're dealing with a really tight timeline here. Yes, Jonathan. Yeah, I think I want to go back to Ryan's point one second about the affiliates. It's very interesting that I'm sure all your listeners, Roger, remember not long ago, we were all stressing out about Section 889, right? The the, the kind of anti-Huawei rules. And and one of the issues there was whether 889 applies to affiliates. And the FAR Council made it very clear it doesn't. It applies to the contracting entity. Entity means contracting entity. There's, There's really no reason to think that the rule at least from a procurement legal perspective, should be different here. So I think Ryan's point that, legally speaking, it applies to the contracting entity is exactly right. I also think the practical point that because the president has made it so clear that he wants this rule to cover every human being, we're going to see contracting officers and procurement officials taking every step they can to broaden the scope of this. And as a practical matter, I think we're going to see one way or another affiliates starting to be covered. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I suspect it will. And then with regard to like non-FAR based contracts, you know, we think about affiliates, you think about all those external folks who are, you know, like law firms. uh, Clearly it doesn't apply to law firms, Roger. So let's go to a new topic. Right. Um, Banks, um, energy companies, healthcare providers, those type of things, you know, I, I mean, I think just the philosophy of expanded act, like yeah, application or, you know, is, is going to pull those folks in. This is a great example of kind of the unknown, but we have some educated guesses, right? So I, I, I think you're right. This is going to pull in so many of those entities that don't consider themselves traditional government contractors. Uh, first of all, hospitals, many hospitals have federal contracts, right? So, so they're likely to be pulled in. 
universities and colleges, all the big ones have federal contracts. They're going to be pulled in. Banks, right? Banks actually have a hold a fair amount of federal contracts. Now, the big question for banks, frankly, is are you a contractor simply by virtue of accepting FDIC insurance? Like Ryan and I handle a lot of questions on that exact issue. And we actually think you're probably not a federal contractor strictly based on FDIC insurance. But what's interesting is in Denise's world, you are a federal contractor for purposes of other executive orders simply by receiving FDIC insurance, like, you know, executive order 11246 for those who, who know about the socioeconomic clauses. So it's not inconceivable the FDIC could say, no, every bank is in play here. So the, these are, as you say, these are known unknowns that I, I would say, well, five calls a day on these sorts of things. So just a um, couple of questions on the um, legal challenges. So first, Denise, from your perspective, the OSHA rule, could that implementation be slowed by a legal challenge? And I'll ask the same about the government contracts rule. Real quick. So. Or- Absolutely. I think OSHA is going to be slowed by a, a lawsuit of some kind. I think private employers are going to have, well, we've seen some support. I think private employers, even, um, you know, smaller, just 101 employees, right? Those types of companies, I, you're going to see legal challenges to the OSHA rule, much more so than what we've seen thus far that, you know, Ryan can touch upon, but much more so. And I think the OSHA one, the likelihood of it getting implemented before year end or soon thereafter is unlikely. Okay. Ryan? We're looking at this two different ways. So first, uh, if a private party is going to file a request for a temporary restraining order or preliminary injunction, we actually have one case that was filed in, in D.C. District Court late September. Uh, it, it is not the most artful expression of the arguments here, but it does specifically reference both the, the federal worker executive order and the federal contractor executive order. We haven't seen any action in that one since, I believe it was uh, September 29th or, or the morning of October 12th now. So that one's worth monitoring to see if it goes anywhere. Uh, you know, uh, in the breaking news category, though, we have this action out of Texas yesterday where the governor has explicitly stated that companies in Texas cannot mandate that their employees or customers uh, be vaccinated. So it seems like we're heading towards an inevitable showdown on the supremacy clause and federal preemption. Uh, at some level, we'll see if it makes it to the Supreme Court, but at some level, a judge is going to decide whether the, the federal task force guidance preempts a governor's action at the state level. Yeah, I saw that too. I was thinking about the, the far rule. So Jonathan, I know you have a a survival guide. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I have a final question for you all. Yeah, sure. We we were getting so many questions and everyone's asking so many similar questions. We uh, we put together, uh, you know, executive order survival guide and it's available not just to our clients. It's available to everyone. It's on the shepherdmullen.com website. You'll see it right on the page. And, and importantly, Roger, it, it doesn't just, it's not just like reading one page ahead of the rules. It's, it's not a restatement of the rule. It's it's our attempt to interpret the unknowns. It's our attempt to make educated, informed guesses as to what's to come next. Uh, clients seem to find it very useful. And again, you'll find it at shepherdmullen.com. And thanks for the opportunity to pitch that. Yeah. So <clears throat> what comes next is sort of my last question. And I just, you know, I've been thinking about this and I'm, I'm ever the optimist. So, you know, as this pandemic, you know, evolves into an endemic, you know, disease, right? 
between vaccinations, between people have, having had COVID and have the antibodies, between the development of new treatments like the pill that's you know been uh, you know submitted for emergency use authorization. How does the government un you know how does it adjust this? I guess as to a changing dynamic. Any thoughts on that? Well, a couple thoughts. Um, luckily, they have a dynamic FAR clause, uh, Roger. So as the dynamic of COVID changes, they actually can do that quite easily. Now, it's a different question as to whether they will. We do have some history in the procurement world where the world has changed and the procurement rules have not. Right? right. We are still using the Trade Agreements Act of 1979, which was drafted when there wasn't services being sold to the government primarily. And so like, we, we do live in a world where we have these anachronistic rules. Um, but maybe the fact that this is a dynamic FAR clause will make it more likely this will change as the times change. Sadly, I'm less optimistic than you that this will be right around the corner. But obviously, it'll happen at some point. Uh, I didn't say right around the corner. I said, you know, soon. At some point. Soon. You know, you can define soon, right? Like yeah, that's a good term, right? So, okay. Anyway, so I want to thank my guests today, Jonathan Ernie, Ryan Roberts, and Denise Gerardo from Shepherd Mullen. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.